A grunge mega hit gets turned into a soulful hip-hop track. A legendary jazz trio takes on a moody rock masterpiece. And one iconic singer-songwriter pays homage to another. You're listening to Themes and Variation. Themes and Variation is a podcast about music and perspectives, brought to you by the online music school Soundfly. I'm your host, Carter Lee. So for this episode, we have a theme I've been looking forward to for a while. We're digging into memorable cover songs. Some of my favorite songs ever are actually covers that maybe surpass the original, at least by a little bit. I don't know that we have any of those songs here on this episode because we did pick some pretty iconic tunes that were covered, but as the listener, you get to be the judge of that. So we've got frequent co-host and co-producer of Themes and Variation, Mahaya Lee, on the episode, and we're joined by our co-worker, Jeremy Young. Jeremy is a fantastic musician whose audio work includes instrumental and electroacoustic compositions for recording and live performance, reel-to-reel tape collage, sound poetry, and audiovisual scoring. Jeremy also oversees Soundfly's daily blog, Flypaper. We get into all kinds of stuff on this episode, like what makes a great cover, are some songs too sacred to be covered, and when it makes sense to play the song exactly as it was intended, or do your own thing with it. And as a quick reminder, we have a free podcast companion course over on soundfly.com so if you want to dig deeper into this episode or any of our past episodes maybe you want to get some additional lessons creative activities and just more info for the musically inclined be sure to check that out so without further ado let's get into the episode memorable cover songs what makes a really good cover because I, I got a soapbox to stand on when it comes yeah, to covers. I'm sure you do. I well, I could list a whole bunch of things I don't really care about, but why don't we start with your soapbox? <laughs> that sounds more interesting. <laughs> my, okay, well, my soapbox <laughs> is probably the lamest and and uh, shortest soapbox to stand on. But I, I've been in in more than enough situations, both in a band or in an audience, where it's okay. Let's do a cover. And then you play the song down exactly as as is and exactly as written. To me, that's just like a, a very obvious set filler. It's like, oh, we didn't have enough songs to reach our 45-minute or, or hour-long set, so we're going to do yeah. this cover. It, just being an audience member, you you have that initial feeling when you hear the cover where immediately like, oh, I know the song, and you're excited. Then you're just stuck in that song with, with whoever's playing <laughs> yeah, it. Like yep. You might as well be in a mall walking around and having that song come on. If you kind of hide the cover, you, you, you reharmonize it. It's kind of like a, a magic trick almost when it reveals to the, to the audience. It really is. And I love magic. May, you know I love magic. Big magic fan. Yeah. Big Penn and Teller fan. As you should be. You kind of have to reimagine the cover in a way that makes it your own because if you don't, then best case scenario, you're a cover band and nobody's going to care about your original music. Worst case scenario, you destroy somebody's favorite song for them in that moment. So yeah, I think unless you're bringing something really original to it, it's kind of a risky move as a performer. Well, what are your thoughts on Weezer's Teal album? <laughs> uh, we talked about this a little bit yesterday. Um, like I, I love it only because I'm a Weezer fan. I think if any other band did that record, because it yeah. is like exactly every version is crazy and it's just Rivers Cuomo singing like paranoid. And another thing we very... t- talked about a little bit yesterday, just mm-hmm. in conversation in our home, Weezer sort of has that like your older brother's band with his buddies vibe, the much better version of that. But there is something where if they showed up in one of their garages and played one of those songs, it would make sense. It's like fun. There's a spirit to it. That's interesting because I, to be honest, I don't care about Weezer as people, but like, I think what you're referring to (laughs) almost is like, is the sense of like comfort that Weezer's music gives you. And so when they do covers, Mm -hmm. it only serves to like amplify that sense of familiarity and comfort because totally you could put on any Weezer song and whether it's like a deep cut or like a big hit, they're so tight and, Mm -hmm. and the covers album completely reflects how tight they are as a band there's like an everyman quality to them though you know oh, like, yeah, i feel like right. sublime kind of had that too where they're very good but there's something so accessible like you don't feel like they're performing for you you almost feel like they're performing with you even though you're obviously not performing with weezer yeah i think you kind of like nailed something like in in <laughs> passing which is that like with a cover the audience needs to feel 
Okay, well, I guess I'm talking about a live performance, maybe maybe an album too. But um, you're having a party on stage, like you're playing that song because you love it. And it's like one of your favorite songs or whatever. If the audience can't find a way into that, then it's isolating. But if mm. it's so infectious that everyone's like, oh, yeah, like, yeah. I love this song. It's a good choice. So part of it is like, you know, the Weezer mm-hmm. thing, like you got to execute it well. Um, but the other thing is like choice, just choosing the right songs. Yeah. I think you guys kind of brought me around with that, but I still, I still like. You played in a wedding band, so I feel like. Yeah, well, you I was going to, I was going to say <laughs> exceptions are in classical music. Well, yeah, because everything's a cover in sure. classical music. And in a wedding Most band, absolutely, dead. that's an exception. The bride and groom aren't paying, you know, thousands of dollars to hear your awesome interpretation of "Don't Stop Believing." Like they want to hear the, they want to hear the Steve Perry like soaring vocals and some some yeah. shredding guitar. Like they don't well. On that note, I did write down a couple things like as I was listening to my song, mm-hmm. like what am I thinking about? Specifically, what am I thinking about with regards to this song and, and how it turns the original uh, into something new? But what does this say about other covers? What do I enjoy about other covers? And I, I just want to run down like a list of, of words. Yeah, please. It's just something to kind of like think about as we go through our individual songs. So um, we touched on this before, but I think the first one is transformation. You know, does it offer something new? And is what it offers, is the new thing that the cover offers valid? And is it interesting? Mm -hmm. Um, Another thing would be relevance. For example, a cover of like a Woody Guthrie song or something in a protest moment. Right. You have a lot of flexibility with that. You're not making it about you. You're making it about something else as opposed to like a car commercial, for example, where there's like a really moody. <laughs> Wait, not a not a not a car commercial. I guess a movie trailer. Yeah, yeah. Oh, movie car trailer. commercials do like I, a lot of Led Zeppelin covers in like Chrysler commercials in, in an era. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, my God. I guess there's also appropriation, which is important like right you know who's covering it and who the was the original artist and what does that say about you know the other thing i think was like reflection like what is it what does the cover reflect about the original that the original almost like isn't capable of saying about itself mm. to run down the list again it's transformation relevance mm-hmm. uh, appropriation and reflection i think that a good cover or even a bad cover more so perhaps, can highlight how good a song actually is. There's certain songs that exist in their setting with their instrumentation and their performer Mm. really, really well, but if you move that to any other performer, it'd be like, oh, wait, this doesn't work in the way that I thought it did. Um, Totally. Anyway, though, shall we jump in? I'm excited to hear what you guys pick. I'll pick it up. Uh, So, yeah, I'd like to share with you guys some of the songs I didn't pick. I kind of regretted not picking Christian Scott's cover of Tom York's The Eraser. It is one of the most beautiful pieces of music I've ever heard. I love the original, uh, but yeah, Christian Scott playing trumpet and, and just playing the melody so beautifully. Uh, I almost picked, uh, well, I thought about it, Robert Glasper's uh, Everything in Its Right Place uh, and the Maiden Voyage medley from In My Element. That record, for me, and all of his trio records, really were like incredibly influential. I'll get into that a little bit. I'm surprised you didn't pick his cover of Twice. Well, you oh, listened to that like nonstop that for a while. We're close. You're, you're very close to what I did actually pick. The last thing that I really considered and, and didn't end up picking was Stevie Wonder's cover of We Can Work It Out. And it is absolutely incredible. It is so good. But in the end, uh, I ended up selecting this cover. Let me know when you got the, got the cover. You know what the is. It sounds familiar already.
So we are listening to the Robert Glasper Experiments cover of Smells Like Teen Spirit. Uh, Jeremy, have you heard this track before? I have never heard this, but you know what? It's funny. While I was listening to it, I was like, this has to be a, like a percussionist-led group. Like, it's just so interesting <laughs> rhythmically. And it's yeah. funny, like, Glasper, I don't know, takes a little bit of a backseat in this? Uh, he at least there, while, yeah. So, yeah. and we'll, I'm going to get into all of that. I found this awesome interview. I actually found it this morning as I was looking for any last-minute details I wanted to share. Uh, but he did an interview with Steve Paulson from Best of Our Knowledge. I've not been familiar with that publication. Mr. Steve Paulson uh, asked Robert, I have to ask about this crossover because this is a fascinating collection of music you're drawing on this album. You have Bowie tunes, Nirvana, as well as the classic jazz tendered Afro Blue. It raises the question, what holds all this music together? So Robert Glasper then went into, it really, it's the honest love for it. When I grew up, my mother was a singer and a piano player, and she listened to so much music, all kinds of different music. You walk into the house, one minute you're listening to Liza Minnelli, the next minute you're listening to Ella Fitzgerald and Oscar Peterson. Then you're listening to Phil Collins or Billy Joel or Bruce Hornsby. The list just goes on and on. So I've always been a fan of just all kinds of music. And then he talks about really the band and why, why it works for the experiment to mm. do covers like this, because they do a lot of them and they, they do them on a level that is just, I think, unmatched. I kind of just, sorry to interrupt, but I no, really like that interview answer because it's like, the interviewer is asking him to reflect on that as an artist, and mm. Glasper instead is responding as a listener. Right. Totally. Yeah. Which I think is really an interesting aspect of playing and rearranging and rewriting covers as an artist. You have to treat it like you're a listener and not necessarily a composer. It's the core skill of such an incredibly gifted uh, improvisational group. Mm. I've seen them play this, this song live, and it's totally different every single time the actual recorded version i guarantee they were in the studio and they're like we're gonna do teen spirit and they just like it just happened the way that they did there's maybe some minor guidance that's jazz to me and that's like what they've done and so just to, to wrap up uh his answer here and talking about how the band can approach these songs and how any other band can maybe approach these and get a little bit better at it uh, he says i think what holds it together is having a band that also has that same eclectic taste in music and you can play that kind of stuff in a fashion that's comfortable and effortless. It brings everything across in a very honest and effortless and casual way versus it sounding like we're trying to be cool by doing these songs, when in fact I've loved Nirvana since I was in the sixth grade. There's a thing with jazz musicians wanting to cover rock songs, and I, I kind of feel like it, com it comes from an inferiority complex about like <laughs> worrying that they're not cool. And uh. I got to take Glasper at his word. Yeah, okay, we're not trying to be cool. And, and he's bringing a band approach to it as opposed to like a single composer approach, like my artist. Right. Um, which is a totally different way of going about it. Like if it just happens naturally and people just happen to be in the studio, everybody's got eclectic taste. Yeah, like choose something that's kind of, you know, an easy progression, mm -hmm. like Teen Spirit to, to work on and then just, uh, you know, innovate around. Right. Way too often is it the opposite, where a jazz musician is like, no, I'm going to take this simple rock song and I'm going to complexify it because <laughs> everybody in the world needs to know that I'm cool too. I feel like it's less trying to be cool and more the realization that maybe the music you make isn't as accessible as you would like. And it gives people a way to connect with you. That was a oh heavy yeah, because that is that's oh, yeah. the thing. The stigma that jazz has is that like because it used to be the the popular music of the exactly. day for decades, and it hasn't been a long time. But I love it so. But I don't want jazz musicians styles. to feel like I don't want any musician to feel like they need to be popular. Have you ever heard a, a rock artist. band doing jazz standards? Yeah, like, and it's to be weird. Cool. Well, because I'm just gonna say, like, it's probably because they can't. <laughs> the commenters are going wild. <laughs> no, but Christmas songs are jazz standards. A lot of them, they they are. Yeah. It's music school jazz that we that we talk about, and I feel like that's a misnomer because, like you said, jazz was the popular style once, not because it was complex, but because of its spirit. And baroque was the popular style once. People connected with these things, and then we get these new styles and new genres, new generations. And we, we overanalyze things, and they get overly complex. Like, I, I don't know for sure this whole jazz groups covering rock songs started, but I feel like Glasper precedes it, and it's kids who listen to Glasper that start getting too heady with it. That definitely became, and I was one of those kids. I, yeah, I did that a lot with my group at the time, Tiger Speak, just like trying to cover something. We did a cover of Justin Bieber's Boyfriend, actually. It was Very singable, 
melody. Yeah. And Teen, teen Spirit has honestly like one of the most, it's such a singable melody. It's so beautiful. When you really mm-hmm. dig into it, there's a lot of ninths at play there, which work. The harmonies may be simple, but the melody is so, so awesome. And the guitar solo doubling that melody, what makes it really a, an iconic song is, is melody. And then what also makes it really fertile ground for making a cover. It's my favorite song inspired by deodorant. Yeah, it's true. I forget <laughs> that that is the case. The iconic nature of a melody, I think, is very freeing when it comes to covers. And this is where like being a jazz artist doing a cover is like an asset. If you already know that you're going to incorporate improvisation, right, right, I could sing in my sleep the melody for Smells Like Teen Spirit and tons of other mm-hmm. songs from that era or like classic rock or whatever. If I can already sing the melody in my head, then that gives yeah. the cover artist like so much freedom to like mm-hmm. Im- improvise around and, and warp it and change it and stuff because I've got it looping in my head already. I don't 100%. need the artist to provide that. This yeah. actually reminds me of something I haven't thought about in years. I can't officially call him a mentor, but um, somebody who I spent a lot of time with, jazz bassist and composer, William Parker, kind of in the avant-garde scene. He's, he's pretty um, influential. I think we were talking about melody. And mm-hmm. he, he just sort of like put his hand on my shoulder at some point And he's like, listen, when it comes to melody, you can do whatever you want. Like you can bend a melody anyways. If you want to pay tribute to something, if you want to play Take the A Train, all you need to do is get that A in there <laughs> and you can still call it Take the A Train. Yeah. That flexibility is really interesting and it's like freeing and it's something to play with. I will say that, uh, you know, Casey Benjamin on Vocoder does stick pretty smooth and melody. So the, the original is in F minor, and I'll dig in a little bit into the harmony a little bit later, but this covers in D minor. There's some mode mixture as well, so it is transposed a bit, but uh, he does stick to the to the melody. That fluttering kick drum that comes in and out from Chris Dave, such a revolutionary drummer playing a kit that has predominantly snare drums where you would have a Tommy plays with like four different snare drums That's of varying weird. depth. Um, and he actually like, I kind of, Pausing whether I want to talk too much about Dilla and his influence on this group. Um, it's definitely clear in the bass lines that, that Derek Hodge plays, the, the way that Robert Glasper plays, the way that all of these, these guys play, particularly Chris Dave. He said he was more influenced, though, by playing to drum machines that weren't exactly quantized correctly. So like mid-90s, he would practice to these beats made by producers that maybe weren't 100%. And so he's playing and thinking of many different times and rhythms, sometimes four at a time. The thing with Teen Spirit is that obviously it had a time and a place, like an originating, uh, like Big Bang sort of moment on the part of the uh, of the songwriters. Right. Um, does all of that get lost when Robert Glasper reinvents it? Like what what carries through? Well, I, I wouldn't say that Glasper's audience or his sort of stylistic choices r- reflect like an angst. It's funny, it's funny you mention that because for me, when I think of the emotion of listening to Teen Spirit jumping on my parents' bed, like pretending I'm playing air guitar in the third grade, I maybe don't do that listening to the Glasper cover, but I have similar emotions come up because the end of this track, and we will listen to it, it absolutely has that same frenetic energy. It's just in a different style. It's so crazy. It's cool. slightly down-tempo from the original. And the, the instrumentation, when you th- look comparing them, I would argue they're not that different. You have drums. Sure, the drum set's a little different than Dave Grohl's. You have bass. Sure, Derek Hodge is playing a five-string. Chris Novoselic was playing a four, whatever. And Derek Hodge is also using an octave pedal. Got to point that out. Um, But you have piano and guitar playing a similar role. And yeah, you have vocoder instead of vocals. Uh, And then some percussion. And um, I got to mention, too, just some of the other personnel. You have uh, Stokely Williams on percussion and Yahi Sundance on turntables. I... I'm normally not a huge turntable on tracks guy. This is an <laughs> awesome example of of just using samples and and and. It makes um, more sense if your intention is to create a feeling of nostalgia. To definitely, use like a record sample. Do you, so. I want to get into the bass because that's the world I live in, and and Derek Hodge is absolutely one of the biggest influences I've ever had on my playing. Um, he is playing his trusty red Fender five string with an octave pedal. The bass doesn't enter until one forty seven. 
you know, you got the drums fluttering with that kick drum. You have uh, samples on the, on the turntables. You have the percussion. You have Glasser playing these very sparse, just the root in the left hand and these sparse clusters in the right hand, just two note double stop clusters. Um, the bass comes in 147. I want to listen to this clip and I want you guys to listen to how the bass doubles the melody and then how the energy flips as soon as it stops doing that. Suspends the energy, builds yeah. tension, like and now walks down to the changes. So that to me is just like as a bass player and and being influenced by players like this, the amount of power that you have for, uh, harmonically is not something to be taken lightly. Like you can <laughs> absolutely. Uh, flip the harmony on its head simply each doubling the melody and it just builds so much energy when you see this band live they do things like this throughout the entire set and it just it, it totally works the audience up yeah, and, any, into, a, into a fever anytime you can have like a bass who's wandering who's moving mm-hmm. around a lot and then you like you lead into a section where everything lines up and the bass just plays the root like along yep. the the melodic uh, lead or whatever and everybody just sort of tightens up that that movement back to tightness from like sort of wanderingness is such an incredible device to use as like a yeah. songwriter arranger um band leader like whatever um yep. it it like links everybody in the audience together um yeah so give powerful. the bass player some man that's that's the way to do it i i would Never. bet uh <laughs> i would bet dollars to donuts dollars to dilla donuts that uh glasper you guys get that right that's yeah, fine um <laughs> that uh, this was totally improvised like it wasn't uh he might have tried it in a rehearsal and was like that's sick you got to do that but i there's probably no chart in front of them to do it i uh i would be remiss if i didn't touch on the harmony of this tune because it is unique uh, the original in F minor, you have the one chord to the four chord to the flat three to the flat six. Um, but in this cover, we, we're now in D minor. Exactly. Dude, uh, it's such a sick riff. It really power is. Chords too, isn't it? it is power chords. Yeah. It's original power chords. So here in typical jazz fashion, uh, we have ninths, we have extensions. Uh, the first chord, the first form really is D minor nine uh, to B flat major nine to F major nine. To A7, there's no third, but there's definitely a flat 13. So it's like an A7 alt. So you have your one chord, your flat six, your flat three, and your five seven. Hey folks, Carter here. I thought I'd interrupt myself to let you know that if you found the last couple of minutes particularly interesting, you should check out Soundfly's course, The Creative Power of Advanced Harmony. The best part about learning the rules of harmony is learning how to break them. Moving outside of predictable chord patterns is what gives D'Angelo his swagger, Grizzly Bear their sophistication, or Erica Badu her sense of ethereal otherworldliness. With the creative power of advanced harmony, you'll explore concepts like modal interchange, secondary dominance, dissonance, chromaticism, and other ways to bring a jazzy sense of harmony to modern music. Whether you decide to go through things on your own using Soundfly's content subscription, or sign up to work with a mentor during a highly personalized one-on-one session, you'll be encouraged to put your skills to work even while you're honing them. And hey, if advanced harmony isn't what you're into, that's okay. We have lots of other courses and a whole team of expert mentors covering a massive variety of topics. Everything from improving your mixes, to writing a song from scratch, to being a stronger band leader, and much, much more. And as a thank you to our listeners, Soundfly is offering 20% off any monthly or annual subscription to our incredible course content. Just enter the code THEMES at checkout. Take a big step toward reaching your musical goals by visiting soundfly.com today. The chorus. The chorus is really hits on a technique that Glasper uses all the time, something I stole from him, something I use all the time myself. Uh, one of my favorite techniques is just kind of pedal point and using common tones. But the changes, those beautiful changes on the chorus are D major, add nine over the ninth. So D major, add nine over E, really unique voicing. Uh, F major nine to A minor seven over G to B flat major to C major 13 to D minor nine. Now, 
We're going to listen to this at the at the end of the tune where the energy really ramps up. And part of the reason why that energy gets to such a, a heightened state is if you listen to the right hand of Glassberry and you can't not notice it, he's just hammering away at this A and in octaves. And he does it a lot. It's very prevalent in, in a lot of Dilla tracks too. There'll be like one common tone uh, hammering away that just floats over every chord. So that A is, you know, you got the fifth on the D major, the third on the F major, the root on the A minor, the major seven on the B flat major, the 13 in C major, and uh, the fifth again on the D minor. It's just, it just works on every chord and something mm -hmm. that, uh, a tool that I absolutely have stolen. Do you want to point out there are lots of covers of this tune? Do you guys, can you think of any other artists that have maybe covered Smells Like Teen Spirit? Not off the top of my head, but I know a bunch have. Mr. Paul Anka has one of the I can see that. Oh, what? it is, it is unbelievable. This is, this is your Canadian heritage moment, right? Yeah, I <laughs> right? forget that he's Canadian. <laughs> yeah, but he, he made it across the border. Like He absolutely my, cried, yeah. yeah. my parents listen Just like Bieber, um, just like Carter. <laughs> just like Bieber and, and me and Drake. Out, less dangerous here we are now entertain us I feel stupid uh, I don't have a ton to say before I reveal what this song is and who the artist is uh, I, okay so I, I guess I'll talk about songs that I didn't choose I really wanted to talk about Johnny Cash's Hurt I hurt myself today to see if Let's I listen to what I chose, and we'll see if you can guess the artist, and you'll probably be able to guess the original artist pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. I feel like your taste in music is so expansive, I'm afraid I'm not going to know. if you haven't heard it in a minute but i'm sure jeremy why don't you tell the folks what we're listening to so this is brad meldow's uh cover of radiohead's exit music for a film radiohead came out with okay computer in 1997 it's their third studio album i didn't actually know this until kind of recently but okay computer was recorded in like a, a country mansion mm -hmm. um, cool. outside of bath like this huge sprawling mansion and a lot of the sort of reverb effects like were just taken straight out of like recording in like a stairwell or, or the corridors or something of this mansion which is crazy but stylistically radiohead was beginning to bring in influences such as christoph penderecki brian eno they cite miles davis's bitches brew as like a hmm, huge influence on what they were trying to do it um ennio morricone can pet sounds so those influences are like pretty far ranging yeah. um with regards to this song, Exit Music for a Film, it was actually written for Baz Luhrmann's um, Romeo and Juliet, and it's oh. played over. Yeah, it's played over the end credits of the film, but the but the song doesn't appear on the film's soundtrack um, by request from the band. They 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 released it on OK Computer and they left it off the soundtrack. So it's really just like it was inspired by Baz Luhrmann. I think he requested a song and. The band started writing this song like when they when they watched the film. Uh, the lyrics tell the story of the double suicide at the end of Romeo and Juliet, and there's this incredible lyrical twist that um, nobody ever really talks about with regards to this song, which is like at the end, like over and over again, he sings this refrain of um, "We hope that you, you choke, choke <laughs> that you, you choke." choke. <laughs> um, and that's so that's so interesting because like yeah. you know at first when this lyrical idea is being teased out I think it's with regards to the sort of like pretty common Radiohead song fodder which is like just being choked by society and um, <laughs> uh, like family and expectations and, and yeah. all this kind of stuff at the end when it's being brought back it's actually kind of more 
a message of hope. Like it's twisted a little bit because yeah. Romeo dies by drinking、um, his own poison. And so if he were to choke, he'd actually probably have saved his own life. Okay, Meldow released exit music on an album called The Art of the Trio Volume 3. Larry Grenadier on bass, George、yep. Rossi on drums. It's a little bit of a flexible trio over the last like 20 years, but that was like his standard. But check this out. OK Computer comes out in May of 1997. Meldow's cover of this song comes out in September of 1998. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's quick. <laughs> we're not, yeah, we're talking like 18 months, and that's、yeah. from release to release, not even incorporating like, you know, composing, arranging, practicing, recording. I mean, that's just wild to me. But I didn't find out about Meldow with this release. Right. I actually started getting into Meldow because of his cover of Paranoid Android,、yep. which came、oh, out in 2002 on his album Largo. Paranoid Android, Karma Police, No, no Surprises were the,、um, were the singles. And then Exit Music is kind of like deep in there. Right off the bat, Meldow is like, that's the one I want to cover. Great. And then four years later, he goes back and like re engages with like the biggest hit in the world off of that album, <laughs> Paranoid Android. Like, that's so weird to me. When you listen to exit music, if you're a piano player and you're listening to, which I am not, so Mejia, like, you would have a better perspective of this. I am not either for the record. But it, the harmony and the way it's laid out and the way it's arranged, it's like you can totally hear it on a keyboard. Yep. Uh, but, like, his, his cover of Wonderwall, his cover of Black Hole Sun, like. The 24 minute cover of Black Hole Sun. Yeah. I, yeah. I am such a sucker for piano trios covering these, these songs. And, and this might be the, the quintessential example of that. And it's short. I think this recording is only maybe four minutes long. Here's a factoid for you、mm. Meldow's version is only three seconds off the length of the original version. I don't think you see this very often with jazz covers of, of rock songs.、Mm-hmm. Meldow's released two other versions of this song. The other two versions are the live version from Art of the Trio Volume 4.、Uh, it's a little bit longer, it's much more free, but they keep the song structure intact. They、mm-hmm. just kind of go with the vibe a little bit. And I think there's probably an element of reading the audience and just feeding the audience yep. there. Yep. But the, the third、uh, release of this song from Meldow is a solo piano version, it's also live. And on that one, he completely throws away the song structure. That's interesting to me for a different reason. But that's more like what I would expect from a jazz cover of a rock song. Yeah. To sort of take the melody, take the progression, and open it up a little bit, like break、yeah. it down,、um, play with it. But this cover, Art of the Trio Volume 3, the one that we just listened to, is like, you, don't even, you might not even want to call it jazz. It's just like a piano jazz trio's. Doing、yeah. <laughs> of the Radiohead song. And he's pretty much following like, what happens with, you know, with Radiohead. You can tell the melody is such a through line for him, even in his improvisation. He's, he's coming back to it, coming back to it. Dude, I, yeah, I can't say enough about this track. This song is in B minor, by the way, but there are some major chords that get brought in in different places. With Radiohead, like because York is sort of directing the message and directing the storytelling, those major chords don't really stray you from that like depressed, sultry, like angsty feeling. Whereas with Meldow, when he brings the major chords in, they offer a glimmer of hope that、hmm. probably is like misleading, actually. So, Meldow's version is probably a happier version than Radiohead's.、Mm-hmm. I'd say maybe more well, polarizing. Because、mm. I'll be real with you. I, like, I, lyrics are what I love in most songwriting,、right. with the exception of maybe High and Dry and Karma Police. I, I don't know any Radiohead lyrics because his performance stands out to me more than they do a lot of the time. Like, he sounds like he's crying somewhere, and you connect with that. I don't know if this relates directly to what you're saying, but I actually had the experience, having listened to both songs a lot, I hear the lyrics. 
so consistently in the Meldau version. And it and it gives me much like with like Christian Scott's The Eraser, I, I just I hear those lyrics coming through. I find myself singing the lyrics to the improvised or not the improviser, the instrumental version mm. uh, so often. I think the one thing though that too, like the biggest thing harmonically that ties these together is that sus four resolving to a major chord, just dropping the four down to yep. the major third. My God, that is such yeah. an awesome moment every single time it happens. It like it makes you want to like it's kind of a happy and and uh, but it's just such an unsettling almost like what you were talking, Jeremy. There is hope in it, but it it's like kind of false hope. Uh, and yeah, and, and explained in, in harmony, which is beautiful. I'm kind of glad that you brought that up actually, because that the the sus four dropping down to the major and coming from the root, which is B minor, which right. is like where we're sort of we're established in that like that center. Um, the way that York plays it with the acoustic guitar strumming, right. Um, is different than what Meldau does. Because, like, you know, when you're on a piano, you you can do the equivalent of strumming, which is, like, you know, the sort of two-handed, like, rhythmic, um, just, like, hitting the, tapping the chords out. Mm-hmm. Um, but Meldau doesn't do that. He opens it up and arpeggiates everything. I feel like part of that is just the difference between the piano and the guitar as instruments. Like, as a pianist, um, with very small hands, it's frustrating <laughs> to me that... You know, you have to get creative if you want to create that sort of bleed between chords or if you want to make anything sound inexact and therefore more human. Like the piano is such an exact instrument. So, yeah, like you're saying, you can kind of create a strumming sound, but you'd have to get really creative with your pedaling <laughs> to make to have that same kind of organic feel that a guitarist can create just because the strings are going to keep ringing or because their finger is a millimeter away from exactly where the pitch is. Mm-hmm. So Melda is using his left hand to sort of hold down the, the chords, the chord progression, and he's actually holding down the rhythm um, for a lot of it, whereas the, the drummer is kind of like supportive. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and with Melda's right hand, he's doing uh, York's top line vocal melody, which is that sort of iconic melody um and getting into the song structure uh like it's basically like broken down into three parts um like first meldau pretty much does everything himself it's like solo piano eventually the trio comes in and they're somewhat supportive um but meldau does a lot of the heavy lifting like musically um and then at 211 in his song he sort of finally lets up some of the responsibilities so that he can play with the like the note decay, the note lengths, um, adding more like staccato where there was previously legato to sort of build that mood, mm-hmm. um, and then getting more inventive with like chord extensions, um, mm-hmm. uh, and that builds towards the the sort of climax, which is the third section where the full band is like it's it's more chaotic, it's more um, yeah like climactic and noisy, um, and the full band really sort of extends a little bit, and and the improvisation comes in. Getting back to sort of like the idea of reflection or something like Meldau can do. I think he's a great artist to tackle like Tom York and, and, and Meldau has done a few Radiohead covers. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, t- to be really honest, Meldau does a lot of covers like he, d- he his sort of pop sensibilities as a jazz artist, I think, are really strong. What is pointed out to me more than anything in, in both the covers we've, li- we've looked at so far, though, too, is just every each artist both, I think, the, the artists that are being covered and the, and the ones doing the covering, just listen to so much wide-ranging styles of music and, and allow that to influence their own voice on their instruments and their compositions. It's, it's about, I think, not having a very narrow view, which I should have taken my own advice when I was just <laughs> like so focused on Glasper and that was pretty much it. But that's, that's where I think artists develop their own voice. And when you're chasing that, it is about taking in as many different influences as you possibly can and then allowing mm. that to come out organically, which is, yeah, like I said, both, both the, the covering and the cover, wait, the covers and, and the <laughs> artists actually doing the covering, you know, I, I think they, they've all done that. So I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to start by telling you about the songs I did not choose. Mm-hmm. Um, we already mentioned Johnny Cash's cover of Hurt by yep. Nine Inch Nails. Oh, yeah. When I'm was... kind of, I'm disappointed neither of us did that song, actually. Mm-hmm. Someone should have. 
I didn't pick Becca Stevens's cover of Usher's You Make Me Wanna. No. I started by just thinking about, you know, the covers that get a lot of credit. So considered Jeff Buckley's Hallelujah. Yeah, that's that's um, uh, up there. I also considered Birdie's cover of Skinny Love, the Bon Iver song. There's one album in particular that comes to mind every time the concept of a cover song is brought up in conversation for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I picked a song from Peter Gabriel's album Scratch My Back. So Scratch My Back is Peter Gabriel covering 12 artists that he respects and was basically inviting to cover his stuff. 10 of the 12 did it. I just want to say like... You have to be Peter Gabriel to do it, I think. I love it. I love it. It, It's... It's bold. It is bold. (laughs) It is bold. It was a slow day and the sun was beating on the soldiers by the side of the road there was a bright light a shattering of shop windows so we're listening to peter gabriel's cover of paul simon's boy in a bubble how familiar are you guys with the original not like yeah no this was a newer track to me i hadn't listened to to graceland a lot a lot of my paul simon listening experiences include garfunkel yeah, probably. My um, my whole thing with Graceland was that unlike Simon and Garfunkel, I have only ever heard Graceland cover to cover. I don't think I know the names of any tracks, but I could probably sing the lyrics of almost everything on that album. Just like wow. it's just like one of those albums that you put on and you leave it on. It's um, an experience, yeah. And it also obviously got me into Ladysmith Black Mombazo, which is funny as like mm-hmm. a, a child of a South African uh, uh, immigrant to America you know, my window into South African sort of musical culture and Abdullah Ibrahim or Dollar Brand and and the jazz that that came out of South Africa and a lot of the African music that I like still listen to today, which by the way, the scene there is absolutely fantastic. It's like funk, Afrobeat, like post sort of Afrobeat, jazz, all kinds of crazy stuff. But my window in was totally Paul Simon. Part of the reason that this album was so monumental is because it did bring different you know, musical cultures into our awareness in the U.S. in a way that wasn't really possible during the time. Totally. Paul Simon heard a bootleg cassette tape of South Lady African... Smith, Black Mombazo. <laughs> Sorry, it, I jumped. No, but, they're, no, but they, they appear on the album. Um, he heard a bootleg of the Boyoyo Boys. I don't know if that's how you say it. And just kind of fell in love with it. Wow. He... He had previously made a decision that rather than having some studio musicians emulate sounds he liked, he would actually go to the places where that music was being made. Wow. Yeah. That was complicated by the fact that this was South African music in the 80s. Apartheid, full swing. His, his awareness to not simply just lift and appropriate the music for the record that he wanted to make is is really awesome obviously it's amazing Mm -hmm. that he actually hired that i know you have notes on this but like actually legitimately hired these musicians uh to play the music that was that was you know indigenous to them and he wasn't just like i'm gonna get a bunch of nyc session cats to like do their best imitation of this he decided to get the real deal yeah and like you're saying not and not to you know fixate on the history of the original song too much and I only know what I could quickly find on the internet during my research. <laughs> but at the time, the going rate for a session player in uh, Johannesburg was about $15 an hour. Mm. Uh, Paul Simon offered the musicians $200 an hour, which was also three times-ish what the average studio player in New York made at the time. Looking ahead to the Peter Gabriel cover, mm-hmm. um, that element of authenticity that Paul Simon like went out of his way to sort of get these musicians... It almost troubles me. Yeah. I mean, Gabriel is incredible. And that, that cover is like, that gave me goosebumps. But like, uh-huh. it makes me a little uncomfortable that like, he sort of stripped away the, the one, you know, element of, of the Graceland recordings. The, the rhythm. Yeah. Um, the group singing. Peter Gabriel's version is very stripped back. 
it doesn't have all the intricacy of these different layers that are not typical in Western music. Which is, well, not ironic, but it's interesting because I feel like Gabriel's super rhythmic, yeah. like, especially yeah. with yeah. his vocal phrasing. I mean, this is partly an interesting cover to me because, and tell me if you guys agree or disagree, but I think that the way the song is treated changes how I, as a listener, interpret its meaning. Oh, yeah. Well, I, yeah. I haven't heard the entire cover yet, but I would probably agree with that. It makes you think of different things. As soon as you mm-hmm. hear it, you know, you start really focusing in on the lyrics, which I think might be right. like a shadow area of Paul Simon's version, which there's so much going on. It's hard to really engage like with each word. Gabriel kind of like lets each word linger. It does feel incredibly somber obviously just the way the piano mm-hmm. is is approached and, and a slower tempo of course i do find it interesting how lyrics can be interpreted in different ways by the listener mm-hmm. like there's so many songs that you think you understand and then you dive a little deeper and you're like wait this is not at all what i thought it was about one of the things that i think made and still makes paul simon an amazing songwriter is he does have that voice of a generation vibe like there's an everyman mm-hmm. quality to him you do feel like you're along for the ride with him and If you look at the lyrics in this song, his version feels like a rallying cry. You know, Peter Gabriel, I think you still get a sense that you're observing the world through the singer's eyes. Mm -hmm. It feels less like an invitation to act on what you're seeing and be overwhelmed by it and more just a reflection and a realization. In Peter Gabriel fashion, I think like you have, again, like very subdued instrumentation and arrangement, but vocally... Yeah. He is bringing it like he really, really is. The way we look to a distant constellation that's dying in a corner of the sky. These are the days of miracles. Actually, when I was reading an interview with Peter Gabriel about this, he talks about how as you get older, you lose top notes and gain, gain bottom notes and just need to learn to get cozy with that. Mm-hmm. So some of the places where Paul Simon jumps his voice up to a higher register, Peter Gabriel's version chooses not to do that. And the melody is slightly tweaked to allow him to stay in that gravelly low part of his voice. The song is also about a minor third lower. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I say about because wow. the original is between like the tunings a little. The tunings a little, yeah. It's funny because when I was listening to that song, I was thinking a lot about like um, Nick Cave's music nowadays and how like actually, you know, the last like three Nick Cave albums, it's a lot of like solo piano and voice and really like low, slow. Listening to that Peter Gabriel cover, I was just thinking like, yeah, it kind of works that he would choose this way of delivering those vocal lines and melodies and, and moving through the song in that way at this point in Gabriel's career totally it feels grown up and sophisticated jeremy you love it he does um he did a magnetic fields cover too which is <laughs> the first thing off of this that did well it's just transcendental some events just really don't. when asked about peter gabriel's version of the book of love Merritt said my version of the song focuses on the humor and his focuses on the pathos of course, if I could sing like him, I wouldn't have to be a humorist. Um, that kind of sums up how I think a lot of these people it's... probably felt about the album. A performer like Peter Gabriel will, will bring something new to your song just by being such a strong performer. Yep, of course. There's such a delightfully humble quote. I feel like Stephen Merritt's probably a delightfully humble guy. He certainly seemed like that at, uh, at the one time I saw him. As we watched an entire two-night performance about him and his life. Yeah. So... Mahal, why did you choose this? A cover album that is an invitation to cover your music is interesting and weird and not something most people could do. No. Sorry if you already uh, mentioned this, but did Paul Simon cover uh, Paul Peter Simon Gab- covered Biko. An excellent singer-songwriter doing a cover of an excellent song. Part of the appeal is the way he tells a story when he sings. Right. Versus Gabriel's voice is velvet. There's moments when he makes conscious choices you have to have control to make. Like some of the weird little catch breaths he takes. Yeah. Come on. Peter Gabriel didn't have to take that breath. He did that for you. So you would feel your feelings. (laughs) Peter Gabriel Um, breathes for you. (laughs) When you do go listen to this song on your own, listen to the breath that happens at about three minutes and 54 seconds. 
I guarantee it wasn't necessary. He made that choice. I want to listen um, to that right now. These are the days of miracle and wonder. Don't cry, baby, don't cry. Don't cry. Is there anything so sacred it should not be covered by anyone else ever? Probably everything has been covered. Like I yeah. like somewhere yeah. on the internet there's a cover of, of But everything. if you heard it, you would cringe even if the performance was good. It's a case by case thing. <laughs> I can't uh, I don't feel like I can get angry about these types of things anymore. I think <laughs> so, I have a hard like, time hearing people try to sing Freddie Mercury. Yeah, but if somebody does it right and that's nails true. it, that's, that's huge. True. It's incredible. Mm. So I think it is it's doable. Like I got one for you. Freebird. <laughs> Wonderwall came up earlier too, didn't it? Yeah, because it did. What do you think the Meldow. most covered song of all time crushed is? It. Pardon? What do you think the most covered song of all time is? Uh, Jeremy, any guesses for the most, uh, the most covered, covered song, song of, of all, all time? time? I'm trying to think. I mean, according to some random site on the internet, "Happy Birthday." This land is your land. I think for what the song is, we can stick to the idea of there has to be a definitive performance. Okay, so "Happy Birthday's up. Um, I have no idea. Wait, well, want me to give you an artist? Yeah, sure. It's the Beatles. Okay. Love Me Do. No, that was a good guess, though. You guys give up? Yeah. Yesterday. Ugh. Yesterday has been recorded over 1,600 times. BMI says that it was performed over 7 million times in the 20th century alone. So, yeah. That's too many covers. Beatles are a good band to cover, though. I'm kind of surprised none of us picked one of theirs, either. There's a lot yeah, to work I think with it's obvious. Yeah, I don't... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I guess a closing thought that I would want to add, and I think we touched on a little bit, is is that it really is an incredible practice and can be incredibly inspiring to pick a song that you love and reimagine in your own style and in your own voice. And you might even decide that you can use that arrangement and changes on a song of your own. And that's going to do it for another episode of Themes and Variation. Thank you so much for listening. We want to know what some of your all-time favorite cover songs are. So as always, there is a link in our show notes to a Spotify community playlist. Feel free to add your selections there. You can also drop us a line with any comments or questions or themes that you want to see in a future episode at podcast at soundfly.com. And if you're interested in supporting the show, consider subscribing to soundfly.com. Remember, use the discount code THEMES to get 20% off the entirety of your subscription. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode and a new theme.